Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today we're welcoming back on the program Professor Keith David Wattenpah. Professor Wattenpah, welcome back to the, epi- Thank uh, you, the Chris. podcast. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back, uh, as always. Professor Wattenpah, he's a, a historian of the modern Middle East, currently professor of human rights studies and director of the new human rights studies program at University of California, Davis. Uh, we're talking about his newest work, his, his second full-fledged monograph uh, entitled Bread from Stones, uh, The Middle East and the Making of Modern Humanitarianism. That's out this year from University of California Press. Bread from Stones is a critical look at uh, the history of uh, humanitarianism, especially American humanitarianism in the uh, late Ottoman Empire and mm-hmm. modern Middle East from the late 19th century uh, up into the mid 20th century. And so today in our conversation, what we're going to do is be making an argument for the historical study of humanitarianism, understanding it as a historical phenomenon, uh, and also giving you a little preview of what's in store in that uh, new work. So Professor Wattenpah, in in a previous episode of the podcast, Mm -hmm. we talked about your first book, Being Modern in the Middle East, which uh, dealt with the middle class uh, in the Middle East, uh, an understudied topic both today and at the time that you had written but a very important topic for understanding uh, the modern world. Uh, In your new book, you've moved to the subject of humanitarianism. Obviously, there's some thematic connections, but uh, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, uh, what brought you to the subject of humanitarianism, and why are you uh, putting this out there as a field of distinct uh, historical study? Sure. I mean, uh, thank you, Chris, again, for inviting me back. And and I want to tell you how proud I am that you're uh, now Dr. Chris Grayton. That's really wonderful. (laughs) Appreciate that. Uh, And... The, the story of humanitarianism that I wanted to tell really has its origins in my first book, but less in the topics I covered in the first book and more in where I went to do my research for it, was, mm-hmm. which was primarily Aleppo. And, you know, Aleppo is again back in the news as sort of the Stalingrad of the Syrian conflict. But uh, when I lived there, I, I lived in the Armenian community of Aleppo, and, mm-hmm. and it was a community of survivors of not just genocide, but descendants of refugees. And you know, as like many of those, many of us from those from that period, I had been, you know, we'd been trained to study the elite Arab nationalism or the elite Turkish nationalism, uh, colonialism, and this, this refugee community. Um, it really seemed to be to be left out and the voices of the refugees, why they were there mm-hmm. how, and how they survived. And so as I lived in Aleppo, I would I would see names of, of foreigners on the buildings of the Armenians. The most important name being Karin Yeppe, uh, who for whom the Aleppo Armenian High School is named mm. in the city. And I thought, well, who is who is this person? And then on one April 24th, mm-hmm. commemorating the, the anniversary of the genocide, um, my wife, the noted Islamic art historian, Helena Wattenpah, and I were uh, wandering the cemeteries of Aleppo, and we came up upon her gravestone. And it said in, in Danish, you know, Armenian, mother of Armenians. And so I was very much intrigued by her. And so I... This was a, a kind of a, a person and an idea I put on the back burner. And then after finishing my first wor- work and you know, moving to an R1 institution where I had more time and then also just becoming more and more frustrated by the fact that when I looked at my own field, I saw a, um, a real neglect towards the questions of 
shared humanity, of refugees, of the most abject, and also of the question of human rights. You know, where, where was it in mm-hmm. our field that I went back and I started, started to pull on that string of Karen Yeppe. And it took me to the League of Nations archive, where mm-hmm. I found, of course, that she had been director of what was called the Aleppo Rescue Home, um, which figures prominently in my 2010 American Historical Review article about um, humanitarianism, where I began to introduce many mm-hmm. of these ideas. But this was a place where young women who had been trafficked during the genocide of the Ottoman Armenians, um, most often to Bedouin households, but also Kurdish mm-hmm. and uh, Turkish households, were brought, um, who usually escaped from those situations, uh, came to Aleppo and they were uh, rehabilitated um, both uh, psychologically and physically. And then um, their stories were written down, which were really remarkable and evocative source for the history of the genocide, but also of a post-genocide period. And then... um, it was a place where they, the League of Nations and Near East Relief and other groups had mm-hmm. really wanted to try to reach out and find their surviving relatives and rebuild community. And so that rebuilding of community idea was was really very interesting to mm-hmm. me. You know, how do you take a group of mostly women, mostly children, survivors of genocide and rebuild them into a community? And so that's a process that involves states and it's a process that involved empires but in this case it also involved the largest organized humanitarian effort by a private organization in up in the history up you know to that point in middle eastern mm-hmm. history not just middle eastern history but even the history of europe as well and that was the work of near east relief mm-hmm. and so let's come back to this this uh, this point you raised that you know the topic you're you're talking about you know, reclaiming uh, Armenian women and orphans, uh, uh, for example, uh, it, it might be studied through the lens of, of nationalism, right? Trying to, you know, the, this is the work of nationalists trying to rebuild their nation in, in the face of a, a national disaster catastrophe, in this case, the Armenian genocide. Um, or it might be studied through the lens of colonialism, if you want to look at the role of, you know, European powers in mm-hmm. the Middle East during the interwar period. But uh, as you said, you've followed a slightly different thread, studying the humanitarianism in its own right. What, what was interesting to me was, was humanitarianism as a field of inquiry gives you an opportunity to look at different kinds of relationships mm-hmm. between Westerners and non-Westerners, but also, and I think this is absolutely critical because this was so missing from our field and really still is, and, and is, I think a lot of us recognize it, but it's hard to in fact, do it because of questions of source material and so on, which is to to help give voice to those who are the victims of mm-hmm. brutality and inhumanity to to in many ways recognize their humanity as both an important group to study in history, but also that you know they they had value then and they have value now to us, and this is this is often denied by the kinds of history we've been taught to write. Mm-hmm. So humanitarianism. And to some extent, human rights studies gives you this chance to to re-engage with some very old questions, but from a very different perspective. Okay. The perspective of shared humanity, the perspective of um, the imperative to save lives and mm-hmm. to care, uh, and also how um, changing attitudes and ideas about um, social science and professionalism mm-hmm. and and idealism were at play against the backdrop of very powerful forces. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's it's never 
humanitarianism is, I call it a weak force when compared to nationalism, colonialism, or, um, you know, statism. I mean, yeah. it's very much a weak force. And nevertheless, you mean that in like a physics sense, kind of like, like a physics sense, right? You know, it's, it, it can't, it, it's one of these forces that can't, you know, necessarily even destabilize an orbit or something mm-hmm. like this. Right. So the humanitarianism is a weak force or Never, soft power. Uh, it's sometimes called soft power and, sometimes, but soft power has its sort of this yeah. diplomatic meaning. But mm-hmm. in this case, it's a weak force though, that is that when done correctly can, can effectively address not just suffering, um, but also the root causes of human suffering. You know, we, we, you know, we talked about this before the interview started is that, you know, when you engage in humanitarian activism, as both you and I have, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're less, your biggest thought is why don't we figure out ways so that we don't have to actually ever do this, right? Why don't right. we, why don't we create systems based around um, the, the correct recognition of human rights, um, systems of justice, right. systems where inequality is not so pers- persistent, um, where violence is unacceptable. If we have systems like that, mm-hmm. then you don't need humanitarianism. Right? Exactly. But, but we do need it still. I mean, right. this sort of, we can think in, in a utopian way, but we live in a dystopian yeah. world. But one, you know, one way of working towards that, of course, is rewriting the historiography of political transformations of the 21st century through the lens, through the humanitarian lens, or through the lens of the subjects of humanitarianism, right. their voices, their experiences, uh, putting them at the center right. of events that are normally considered momentous, but in which they're, they're rarely represented. Mm-hmm. And I think we have better tools to do that now. Mm-hmm. But the further back we go, it, it, it's more difficult. Mm-hmm. So for this book, the archival sources are not non-existent. I don't want to use double negative, but they're they're but they're not there's not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what, one of the things I was able to do is pioneer um, working in the League of Nations archive yeah. with this. And I I'm always very suspicious of the League's archives. I'm you know, unlike other scholars who just sort of take them at face value. I find them to be very problematic in many ways. Um, and that's because I was trained how, in how to use colonial archives. People who are trained in the use of national archives, European archives, tend to look on the League archives differently. So, um, I mean, Susan Peterson, for example, in her really marvelous new book, I think to some extent enga- does not engage as critically in the, the fact that the League was such a tremendous adjunct to colonialism. And just because yeah. her perspective is very much from an Atlantic perspective, mm. but humanitarianism, I think we, I would encourage many of us to not only engage in it, but also to understand it as this kind of force in history. And in particular in the Middle East, um, where each successive generation since the 1860s has really been exposed to terrible dislo- displacement and dislocation mm-hmm. and the creation of vast waves of refugees. I mean, it's a topic that's so relevant today where we're seeing maybe the greatest, uh, you know, when we talked on the heels of our, of our uh, trip in southern Turkey to see the situation of Syrian students and to see just how many millions of, you know, families are displaced in some way by the war in Syria, just to imagine that that was even before really the rise of ISIS and mm-hmm. the, 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 you right. know, things got even worse right. after that to, to see the, the depth of the crises. You, you said that that crisis was worse than the Iraqi refugee crisis, right. uh, after the U S invasion mm-hmm. of Iraq. And, and, propo- I, and right. And proportionally it proportionally, the displacement of the first world war in terms of 
you know, yeah. the, the proportion of population that was displaced, it's now eclipsed that. And I that, mean, that's remarkable right. to and think to, about. And, you know, those of us, you and, and Graham and others who study that period, really know how immense the displacement was yeah. at the end of the First World War, during and after the First World War. Yeah. Well, what's happening now has has eclipsed that. And I, I for, for us, this is, a, I think, is a very meaningful moment because we understand the horror that that displacement caused mm-hmm. in the interwar Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so if we just base our thinking about what's going to happen over the next generation in the yeah. contemporary region that, you know, it's, it's, it, it appears hopeless. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, um, but humanitarianism as a force doesn't allow us to, to perceive the world that way. Right. So you can't perceive a world without hope because otherwise what would be the point of exactly. being a humanitarian? Yeah. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Keith David Wattenpah about his new book out from UC Press entitled Bread from Stones. It's a look at uh, the history of modern humanitarianism and the centrality of the Middle East uh, in in the formulation of uh, this concept and this, in some way this ideology. I, re- I mean, humanitarianism really is a form of ideology. I think that's yeah. one of the important insights I make in the, in the work is that it saw itself in some cases, in the most, not, not extreme cases, but in the right. most thought, thought through cases as an alternative to other prevailing ideologies of the day mm-hmm. and including, um, forms of socialism as they're mm-hmm. arising. And this has not really ever been thought about, uh, unfortunately. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting yeah. it. I mean, let's get into that a little bit more because, you know, some of the, the subjects that you know, we, we talked about this, you know, today realizing the extent of the humanitarian crisis, it's actually disheartening to know that we've witnessed this a lot throughout history. And yet these seem to be unpreventable or there's not a political will to prevent such events. And, and people look at, look at how, American public is reacting today to Syrian refugees. People once again need to be reminded of the humanity of their fellow humans. Uh, it, right. you know, some things never change. But w- what I want to ask you is, um, you have this concept of the making of modern humanitarianism. So charity and relief, these are things that have existed throughout the human societies that we know that are documented. But uh, in your book, Bread from Stones, you're identifying a shift towards, I guess, what you're calling an ideology of humanitarianism that is distinct from the older models of either charity or um, humanitarian intervention as it's used in the European political context. Uh, Maybe you could explain that a little bit. I think that's a very, uh, one of the more important insights I make in this work, and others have talked about this as well, which is the the shift to the humanitarian worker as a professional. And this is, this, this Mm. maps onto the forms, the, the formation of the professions the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century yeah. as well. But in this case, it's really a shift to thinking about not just addressing human suffering, but addressing the root causes of human suffering yeah. and to use uh, science and medicine um, and to some extent, uh, political ideology as well right. to to do so. And uh, you, you point out that an uh, important part of that political ideology is the idea of trying to be neutral in, in alleviating suffering. There's both the, the, the ethic of neutrality, mm-hmm. but also in the case, especially of Near East Relief, which we'll, we'll get yeah. into here, there was a sense of empowerment as well, which ran afoul um, of national governments. 
and where um, those who were helping the victims of genocide saw the empowerment of survivors, the political mm-hmm. empowerment of survivors, as in fact one of the ways to address their human suffering. And that that really uh, was transformative, yeah. um, but also as after that period, humanitarianism really evolved away from that. And it's only really been in the last decade or so with the discussion of, of rights-based development mm-hmm. that that conversation has come back into focus. And it's still very controversial. Right. I mean, this is a controversy that that really roiled uh, humanitarianism in the early part of the century. It disappeared for generations and then has come roaring back um, after the sort of discussions of economists like mm-hmm. um, Amartya Sen and William Easterly. So let's talk about Near East Relief then. Uh, a lot of Bread from Stones does focus specifically on the activities of Near East Relief. Near East Relief is a, an American organization uh, affiliated with the American Red Cross. It is, um, as you said, it's, it, it has this ethic of neutrality. It's institutionally independent. But at the same time, it's arising out of the context of missionary relief movements, proto-humanitarian, you could call them, or something, uh, in the Ottoman Empire during um, uh, the late 19th century. century. Why don't you explain that transformation? So just just a tiny correction there. The the relationship between Near East Relief and the American Red Cross was pretty loose. There wasn't, it didn't really emerge out of it. It, But it certainly shared um, some of the same ideas with Mm -hmm. it. But Near East Relief, to some extent, even though it claimed its neutrality, um, rejected some of the forms of neutrality that that um, the American Red Cross employed in a kind of anticipation of what eventually Médecins Sans Frontières would do in its mm. relationship with the Red Cross, um, understanding that neutrality sometimes meant helping the state or the group that was visiting the most damage upon populations. Right. And so, I mean, the event that really puts Near East Relief on the map is the First World War. Uh, What we know today is the Armenian Genocide. And and also also, the the famine in Beirut. Yeah, exactly. The the famine in in greater Syria, uh, the general um, situation of Christians uh, in Mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire during the war period. Uh, Of course, uh, if we're thinking about an ethic of neutrality, there are some questions that mm-hmm. I think we need to resolve a paradox there. Sure. I mean, there's one way, one way to read it. And one way that it's been read is, is that this is Christian organizations allied with the allied powers, mm-hmm. uh, in the first world war, adopting an, an essentially antagonistic stance towards the Muslim enemy of, uh, those powers, right. uh, and seeking to undermine them, uh, maybe not with weapons, but in this case by, yeah. uh, trying to empower, um, the uh, would be oppressed Christian mm-hmm. uh, subjects. Could you? Uh, well, I think I think there's a couple things. Pick here. apart the, that paradox the, a little the bit. The first the first issue, of course, is that no Muslim population during the First World War in the Ottoman Empire was facing genocide, right? So, you know, it's it's a situation where the where Near East Relief was having and other international humanitarian mm-hmm. organizations were having to step in to help a group of people who are putting being in, spe- specifically targeted I and guess. they're being put in a state of exception mm-hmm. right and um they're being denied the basic rights of citizenship mm-hmm. um they're being told not just you can't live with us but you can't live at all mm-hmm. so i mean to somehow you know, i think it's very important to note that that suffering was was generalized during during the first world war in the middle east mm-hmm. however only one and also some other communities, but 
only Christian communities were being targeted for this kind of extermination. Sure. Although, I mean, one could make the case that uh, the way that uh, the Ottoman Empire handled uh, displacement of Muslims, mm-hmm. Kurdish communities in eastern Anatolia actually kind of was in a way deporting them right. throughout the empire was right. kind of a similar it process. Was, and I think it was. And I think that the issue there is, and I talk about this in... Um, my discussion of you know why Palestine, uh, Lebanon received assistance during the First World War by by major American relief organizations, but places like Baghdad did not, mm. and it has a lot to do with American conceptions of what the Middle East is, yeah. uh, their own sort of relationship to to the region that had been developed over time. But you know, it's it there's a, there's a couple issues that have to be unpacked there. One is the idea that the this form of suffering matters mm-hmm. um, and especially if you're being placed outside of the circle of care by the state and that there was a generalized better generalized awareness of this but mm-hmm. you know christian solidarity has to play a part in understanding yeah. this um but you we should also be aware that you know for example medical faculty from the american university in beirut set up aid stations mm-hmm. on the ottoman front at beersheba um, they also traveled to help at the Battle of Gallipoli, um, yeah. the Ottoman mm-hmm. side, that Near East Relief Hospitals were open to all and in places like Izmit and so on, uh, mm-hmm. addressed mostly, uh, most of their um, patients and so on were yeah. were from the, were Muslim patients from nearby, that um, the Rockefeller War Relief Board set up soup kitchens in Istanbul. I mean, mm-hmm. the list goes on, but, yeah. you know, the... The of a very critical point I make in this is that you know that the form of suffering of Ottoman Christians, in particular Armenians, mm-hmm. was unique mm-hmm. during the war, and that it called for a unique response. Right, and this was not anticipated by Near East Relief when Near East Relief first became interested in um, in the region. It was primarily to address the famine in. Mm-hmm. Um, Beirut in particular and the mountain, um, in part because of the access to that region by the faculty of the Syrian Protestant College, which yeah. eventually became the American University in Beirut. So, so but, the ex- but experience this, actually right. transforms the humanitarian right. and, ideology and, 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 and it responds to the need, yeah. right? And I think also it's important to point out that this um, narrative of, of sort of, of being ignored by international uh-huh. humanitarianism um, which is really part of a sort of a, a, a nationalist, a hyper-nationalist narrative of victimization mm-hmm. um, in Turkey in particular, uh, should, I, I think it, it's not particularly relevant to a historical understanding of what really happened. And so that this, is, this narrative is employed in part to further indict the West, especially sure. around is, the issues related to the denial of genocide and to uh, Turkey's presentation as a as a state yeah. that, that fell victim to Western powers during the during the war. But actually, you comment uh, quite critically and poignantly on this very um, issue uh, in Bread from Stones when you're talking about how uh, humanitarianism transformed to the realization that uh, Christians in the Ottoman Empire, people who could be identified as somewhat civilizationally equal um, to Americans in the United States or, you know, relief workers in uh, in the West, how that actually transformed the approach to um, these types of uh, displacements and, and all the various uh, 
factors of war that had been going on for a long time. They had gone on in the United States, uh, as you point out, mm-hmm. though there was much less concern for the plight of American Indians uh, than for uh, Armenian Christians. I, I felt that that comment, if I if I may continue, was very similar to the 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 indictment that M. A. Cesar makes about. Um, European colonialism in the wake of the Second World War, how Europe became horrified uh, by the mm-hmm. horrors of uh, right. genocide in Europe, the Holocaust, uh, and he says, "Well, this has been going on in the colonial world for a long time." Right. Y- you make that point about right. Congo, I, actually. Right. Exactly. So the it's it's a question of it, it, humanitarianism is selective in who it helps. Yeah. Right. This is one of the axioms of humanitarianism. Um, selectivity has various sources, but one of the ideas I propose is that um, the less the victims of suffering appear to be the other, right? The less strange they are, Mm -hmm. the more connection, the more empathetic connection exists. And so you want to help them more. Yeah. So um, one of these issues of selectivity to be aware of is that, you know, before the refugee crisis in Syria erupted, there was a terrible refugee crisis in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Right. And but that the outpouring of sympathy, which mm-hmm. is absolutely useless in terms of developing humanitarian assistance. Yeah. The Syrians now and the 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 Middle Eastern Christians then seem to be more knowable and less strange to Western humanitarians. And so that their assistance was more justified. Um but it's, you know, I've been through the archives of these organizations, Near East Relief in particular, and it would be very, very difficult to make a case from those archives that this was seen as an adjunct to the Allied war mm-hmm. effort in the region, um, especially because much of that Allied war effort helped contribute to the suffering right. that was being blockade, experienced. For the blockade, for Right. And uh, the other thing, of course, is the United States wasn't at yeah, war with the, the Ottoman was neutral, Empire. neutral, so it could. Right. And so, in fact, that neutrality really placed a special burden on the on the Americans. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it no one should ever discount the, the kind of suffering that all the peoples of the Ottoman Empire faced during this period. But I, again, I think it is absolutely critical to understand that genocide matters, mm-hmm. right? Then that kind of suffering matters. I mean, to draw another analogy, the German people suffered terribly during the second world war but that doesn't mean we wouldn't take special measures to try to address the suffering of victims yeah. of the holocaust mm-hmm. um so that but that's that this is an important issue to raise especially because the degree of selectivity at some points became so intense um and that yep. muslim populations really were left behind but that said if you're a refugee living in french mandate syria mm-hmm. you don't have citizenship you don't have a state that's there to take care of you. You yeah. can't return to your homeland. The Republic of Turkey has blocked your ability to return, um, has denationalized you. Mm-hmm. International humanitarianism is really the only organization that can help you. Yeah. So in the you know, as terrible as the First World War was to for most Ottoman Muslims, they still had a state as weak as it was after the Second World War. Yeah. I mean after the First World War that could help recreate and rebuild their societies. Unless they, unless unless they were Kurds, right? Well, or, 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 you know, the, the French mandate, British mandate context is a little bit tricky there in that right. regard because this is a semi-colonial right. situation. Actually, it's more than semi-colonial. It is a colonial situation. But the, the issue there is that there was a state apparatus that in theory 
would care for and provide citizenship rights mm-hmm. to Syrians. Now, the irony, of course, is the only thing that was different between you know someone in Aleppo and one of these Armenian refugees mm-hmm. from Madash mm-hmm. is that they were in the same province, the Vilayet of yeah. Halep, and that the this, the person living in, by an accident of where the railroad line goes between Syria and Turkey, the person in you know from Aleppo has citizenship in Syria, but the refugee from Madash doesn't. Right. And we're seeing the flip of that yeah. now with the Syrians from, you know, far northern Syria fleeing into across exactly. yeah. a border that seems to separate, you know, that that that, is, that seems so artificial. Yeah. Um, that are not able to enjoy citizenship mm-hmm. rights then in southern Turkey. So. Hello and welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Professor Keith David Wattenpah about his new book, Bread from Stones. Uh, If you're looking to possibly purchase or maybe just take that book out from the library, you can find the bibliographical information and a link on our website as other links to some other useful books and and podcasts uh, related to this episode. Uh, So, uh, Professor Wattenpah, we were just talking about actually the post-war you know we were talking about the humanitarian crisis in the ottoman empire during the first world war but we moved kind of into that Mm post-world war one period and actually one of the very fascinating uh sections uh in your work uh deals with the transformation of humanitarianist or american humanitarianism uh in that post-war context, the immediate post-war context, not during the war itself, of course, but Mm -hmm. actually in how the aftermath of the war plays out. Would you mind telling that story? Because it's a great story that I think a lot of people forget in the history of the modern Middle East. Right. I mean, the United States in Near East Relief really became the building block of the post-genocide Armenian community. I mean, the form of the Armenian diaspora in Mm -hmm. the Middle East was really shaped by the American presence. Yeah. And it it was shaped... And there was resistance to it uh, amongst Armenians in particular. But sure. the Americans really saw the Armenians as a vanguard of a new Near East. That was, in fact, the name of their journal. Mm-hmm. That, they, that these American uh, humanitarian and relief workers saw their role as transforming the Middle East entirely yeah with the armenians as the pivot around which that transformation would take place and this this begins right in the right in the aftermath of the war right in, the in that pre of the league war. of nations type of period where you have amongst many other things that are going on uh the large scale repatriation of armenians back into anatolia right. and especially uh cilicia which right. is under french control so at the, time. the idea was is that near east relief and here i you know one of the the central characters of this work um, is Stanley Kerr, mm-hmm. whom some of your listeners might know as the father of Malcolm Kerr, who was mm-hmm. a very important political scientist, um, wrote the Arab Cold War, yeah. and then unfortunately was murdered by agents of Iran um, as while he was president of the American University in Beirut. Yeah. And then you also might know him because his grandson is Steve Kerr, yeah. one of the one of great perhaps shooter. not perhaps not one of the greatest basketball players of his generation, but certainly a guy who got to play with the greatest basketball players of his generation on the Chicago Bulls, and then um, has gone on to coach the world champion Golden State Warriors. So um, 
but if his family includes like Anker, who's been a, a real stalwart in assisting generations of Middle Eastern scholars, mm-hmm. and then John Kerr, who is um, still involved in relief work as an agricultural economist at, mm-hmm. at Michigan State University. Um, and so the idea was to take the refugees and bring them back into Anatolia, not necessarily to where they were deported from, yeah. but into resettlement zones where they would then be the backbone of a new Armenian community. And this was going to be built from orphans, um, from children. Um, and I, we talked some about this in um, a memoir that we've recently had, that's recently been translated and published with Stanford about the life of Karnik Panian, mm-hmm. who had been incarcerated in an Ottoman orphanage during the war, faced mm-hmm. Turkification, much like Native American children might have faced mm-hmm. in the, exactly the same period of time in a boarding school yeah. run by the U.S. government, um, who then is part of this uh, group of young Armenians who is transshipped back to you know, Marash and Aintab mm-hmm. and Urfa to serve as the back, again, this backbone of a new modern American style, or at least American influenced Armenian community. Mm-hmm. And this would be a community built around democratic principles, uh, contemporary uh, health, yeah. uh, highly educated, uh, but also educated in manual arts. Um, and, um, but as many of us know, this utterly failed, you know, politics, yes. politics intervened and no, in fact, I mean the, yeah. uh, the humanitarian disaster that comes out of the, the French, the French retreat withdrawal. in Cilicia right. is on par with anything that happened during the first world war right. in terms of uh, relative magnitude. Right. So, I mean, of course what happens there is that it sets off a very brutal civil war, in which then uh, Ar- Armenians and Muslims face massacre and counter massacre. And then most of the Near East release projects collapse. And then there's yet again, a movement of, of close to a million people back yeah. to um, Syria and Lebanon, um, where then they have to, they settle then as strangers in a new land. And I think one of the strengths of, of your work uh, is that it, it really does come, it, it, it keeps coming back to, uh, you know, the mentality of uh, the humanitarians themselves, how they experience that, and, and a little bit about how the emotional experience of failure in this case, in the case of Cilicia, transforms the way they think about uh, what it means to alleviate suffering, as which you take as so a that's, central that's subject. That's right. I mean, they, they, there was a kind of, um, that they had, they had gone from a nation-building project in, in bringing the Armenians back mm-hmm. into Syria to trying to keep a community together in exile, mm-hmm. which is a much less, I mean, you know, a much less noble task, I guess. Sure. Um, it also tells us how difficult it is to nation build something, mm-hmm. Amer- a lesson that we should have learned in 1922 and shouldn't have had to relearn in 2003. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> so we're um, reading the same books, maybe. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, so, and that, that brought on a different set of challenges and some of the sort of what we would now call rights-based development aspects of the Near East Relief Project in Southern Anatolia had to be abandoned when you were trying to bring refugees into what became a fairly hostile environment and um, also an environment where some of the, the uh, you see the first stirrings of of 
um, forms of Arab nationalism or regional nationalism Mm -hmm. that was antagonistic towards the presence of this sort of wave, human wave of not only non-Arabs, but Mm non-Muslims into, into Syria, Lebanon. And, um, and that Near East Relief, I think, was fairly successful, but they had to abandon some of the empowerment dimensions right. of their They were work. successful at keeping people, for example, from dying or right. starving. But also, but they, they, were also, they were also successful in helping keep them together as a community, mm-hmm. right? And so it went towards the pre- preservation of the Armenians as an intact community, mm-hmm. which I think many of them saw as a rebuttal of genocide mm-hmm. right? they wouldn't necessarily have said it that way but yeah, for course, them but the idea was that you know these are people who faced extermination we cannot let that succeed yeah and they so they began to see the assimilation of armenians into arab society which would have been the sort of natural path that mm-hmm. they could have taken as finishing the act of genocide that that, that maintaining an armenian cultural and just to a very small extent political identity within Syria, Lebanon yeah. was a way to resist that final act of genocide. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of looking back, um, it, it's, it's remarkable that the American people were part of such a kind of intervention in Middle Eastern society. And it was, and what I've always found very important about that is it wasn't a kind of exploitative relationship. At that point, it was just about trying to keep them together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, we're supposed to be very cynical, but I see this as a, as a blueprint for imagining a different kind of relationship between Americans and Middle Easterners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a relationship built on, you know, trust, on education, on, um, on a recognition, mutual recognition of humanity that uh, I think has been horribly absent for almost my entire career yeah. in, in Middle East studies. Well, uh, yeah, of course. And I we've mean, seen just over this, you know, Chris and I are recording this in the wake of the, these governors saying that they wouldn't let Syrian refugees into their states. Yeah. And you're just, I, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching it come back. And I think it's, if I were to meet Governor Snyder or these other governors, I would I would talk to them about Near East Relief, and I would tell them, look, there was a moment when the, when American society mobilized to help the yeah. peoples of the Middle East. Well, do, so I mean, we're getting a little bit. People can read the book anyway if they if they want to find <laughs> out some of the details. But do you remember this moment in the one of the Republican uh, presidential debates where they? Asked one of these softball questions mm-hmm. like, "What woman would you put on the ten dollar bill?" And all, all of the candidates ha- have horrible had horrible right, answers. Like their wives like, and these sorts of things. Jeb Bush said Margaret Thatcher, and <laughs> I mean this kind of stuff. But one of the answers, uh, I think it was Scott Walker. He he actually said Clara Barton. Right, he said Clara Barton. who was the founder of the American Red Cross, yeah. and that was a halfway decent answer, right? I mean, it's a halfway decent answer, but and he there's this implication that that represents like sort what America values, is supposed to represent right? to the world. And right. it's interesting that that the idea that America is a moral leader still persists al- alongside the very people who are saying that right. you know, we must keep these So, I mean, and I think that there it's very easy and we we should always take a John to die on this is to dismiss the fact that, you know, America says it's this great beacon to the world yeah. in, in terms of, of humanitarian assistance and so on. And, you know, every single major refugee group coming to America with the possible exception of, of 
uh, Russian Jews were were viewed as, you know, they're going to bring in terrorism and who wants yeah. them here. And, and even so then, on. that right. that was unpopular to right. a lot of people. The right. idea that Jews were going to settle in right. the U.S. and um, and then you know, in the lead up to the Second World War, the fear was that you know Jewish immigrants were going to be riddled with uh, you know Nazi spies and these sorts of things. So I mean, these all these debates are fairly old right. in American society. But nevertheless, we did let in. True. Yeah, the you know, and and in the period after the Second World War, I think in many ways, um, the admission of of large numbers of European refugees, um, which was a policy that Republicans and Democratic presidents supported, uh, I think was in part a reflection of the fact that there was a kind of cultural memory of what happened also after the First World War. Okay, um, and that. Um, you know, the the cause of Near East relief was exceedingly popular in America. It 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 lost its popularity in part because um, the the crisis ended. You know, you know, especially it was built around helping children and orphans. And the yeah. the the really great thing about children is that they stop being children at some point, um, and so they're much, a much less evocative subject. Yeah. And uh, but but nonetheless, that that this is an example of of a genuine outpouring of not just of some sympathy, but also empathy and care mm-hmm. by the American people for a population that, that had really suffered terribly. Yeah. And sure. But when, you know, when you look at this, you've read the sources more yeah. than I have, but you know, there is kind of a equivocal nature to some of the discourse in these sources that, you know, it's being marketed maybe to churches in the U S as like a champion in Christianity, um, perhaps you know, even fighting you know Islam, no. but then the workers on the ground in the Middle East are pursuing a different. But goal. if you if you look at a lot of the, I mean, there there was a message that often went to churches. It was built about around the the idea of lest we perish, which was sort of the yeah exactly the famous posters. But you look at a lot of the discussion; it really is about uh, one of the most poignant ones is that you know America is is a fat happy land, and we have a responsibility. So. Much of it was even turning at that point on the notion of American responsibility abroad, mm. a kind of, you know, certainly it had a, a kind of a Christian undertone of, of you know, you, you have a great deal, you should share it with those who are less fortunate. How, but on the other hand, it w- even at that period, it was being seen as an expression of Americanism mm-hmm. abroad. And, and, and many of these people drew a very active distinction between how Americans behaved abroad in a non-colonialist fashion and brutal European empires that we represented a new way in, in our, our work abroad. So yeah, you actually introduced an interesting concept of humanitarian exceptionalism for Americans. uh, So Americans saw themselves, you know, they, they took the notion, right. As uniquely good. And the demonstration of this was their form of humanitarianism. Now, some of this, some of this was just pure marketing, right? Yeah. I mean that you needed to you needed to raise money. Near East Relief didn't receive money from the U.S. government. It was it was a yeah. non governmental organization, and so this was you know this was operatives of Madison Avenue were out there yeah. figuring out how to separate people from their money, just like you know Save the Children and Médecins Sans Frontières yeah. and UNHCR do today. And sometimes you appeal to people more logically and reasonably. And sometimes you just show them pictures of suffering. And I think that there's all sorts of problems in that, but until we work out a better system of getting assistance to people who need it, sometimes this Mm -hmm. kind of, um, 
this charitable giving is is absolutely important. And and if I may just add one last thing there, uh, when you, when we talk about Americans giving during the First World War and after the First World War, we have to remember that a lot of these people who are giving are in fact. Um, immigrants themselves from the Levant right. or Armenian immigrants to the US or, or the, the, you know, the generations right. that followed that this was a community that was very actively mm. uh, part of the politics right. of uh, the interwar period so. in the US. So I, I, I don't, one of the things I tried to achieve with this work is, is not, is not adopting a kind of um, what I, what I call the, the modernist smirk. Mm hmm. I see. Right. You know, it's like, oh, these people, you know, they were, they, this, this was just all about their, you know, Christianity and their sense of, uh, you know, American superiority. Well, there was some of that there. Right. But when you spend a lot of time reading their letters home and and catching them in these very honest moments, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, the, I, I had access through their family to the letters that Stanley Kerr sent home from Madash to his, his family. And, He's not talking about, you know, expanding American influence mm-hmm. in the Middle East. He's saying, yeah. you know, we don't have enough socks to last yeah. the winter here. And yeah. then in even more poignant moments, he's saying, look, I think, you know, we may not, uh, we're, we're facing massacre tonight. The French abandoned us. We are going to try to stay with uh, the people that we're here to serve in the hopes that, you know, by we as Europeans being here, yeah. we can, um, as Americans, we can stop that or prevent it. Mm-hmm. Or at least just be witnesses to the atrocities that yeah. might follow. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think taking that seriously is part of uh, disaggregating all of these discourses to not allow people who maybe have different goals to be claimed by you know more cynical political interests in the U.S. as mm-hmm. as part of their Absolutely. agenda. That these are actually competing forms of, uh, of power. And right. I think by centering on the experience of uh, the subjects of humanitarianism, refugees and whatnot, and, and the workers themselves, you've really kind of I think put a so. face on that uh, uh, ideology that wasn't there before. Right. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, I appreciate and, too. and talking about the fun. book with us. I encourage our, our listeners to go out and read that and uh, engage. I with encourage really, them to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go out and buy it. I mean, it. I have to make you know make my contributions to Médecins Sans Frontiers and so on. So. Yeah, uh, a portion of the, the, uh, the proceeds, uh, proceeds will, go will to always charity. go to charity. Okay. We'll, we'll go, not to charity, to effective humanitarian action. <laughs> Very nice. Well, I want to thank all of you for listening to the podcast and, and do really encourage you to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find an easy link to uh, uh, Bread from Stones off of UC Press coming from Professor Keith David Wattenpah. That's also a place to leave your comments and questions. Check out our other episodes with Professor Wattenpah or otherwise. Uh, and, and other Wattenpahs too. And other Wattenpahs, of course, yes. Have our Wattenpah as well. That's also a place where you can get in touch with our Facebook community. We're pushing 22,000 uh, Facebook followers that you can get in touch with and engage with uh, uh, on the web. Uh, I invite you all to join us in our next episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Until then, take care. Take care.